what a powerful reminder to us all that the love that Jesus extends to his people runs deep even to his enemies, even to us. wonder if you've ever had a moment, or moments plural perhaps, where you have felt inadequate for the task before you. Ever had a moment like that? I've had many, continue to have them on a regular basis. Perhaps some of us here in the room may remember one moment that, that's often shared as a moment where we're just sort of feeling like we've outkick our, uh, outkicked our coverage, and that is driving home from the hospital as a first-time parent. Some of you remember that moment very clearly, hands on the wheel at 10 and 2, going 10 miles under the speed limit for the first time in like, ever, scared to death that they actually let you leave without an instruction manual for how to raise this precious little life, feeling inadequate for the task. Here's my confession to you this morning, I'm feeling that way right now. The text before us this morning is a hard one to swallow and an even harder one to apply to our lives. Jesus is about to tell us, among other things, to love our enemies. I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 24. If you're using our church Bible in the seat back in front of you, that's page 810. Again, Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 24, we'll continue in our journey together through the glorious gospel of Luke. And before we begin, let's go to the Lord and just ask Him for His help one more time as we uh, dig into the Scriptures. Father, we do pray that You would give us ears to hear what You have said in Your holy, inspired, infallible Word. Lord, we are desperate to hear from you afresh today, and our heart's desire to obey, but we desire to please you. And so, shine the light of Jesus on our hearts now as we incline ourselves to your word. Lord, would you guard us from error, and would you guide us in your truth, and would you give us courage, Lord, your very spirit, to walk out a truth that, quite frankly, is beyond us. We need your help. And so we pray for it with confidence because Jesus is on the throne. We ask it in his name. Amen. Would you read with me? Luke chapter 6 beginning in verse 24. This is Jesus speaking and he says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. 
If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Now, with these words from Jesus, our Savior and King, still ringing in our ears, I feel that it's necessary to be clear this morning about what we're not attempting to do. What we're not going to try to do on this Lord's Day morning is to answer all of the questions that could possibly bubble up from a text like this. And there are many questions that emerge from a text such as, such as this one. Questions like this. How comprehensive is Jesus' call in verse 29 to turn the other cheek? I mean, is it ever okay to retaliate? Is there ever a time at which it would be appropriate to defend yourself in a situation like this? How about this one? Is, is there ever a time when it's okay not to give someone who asks of you vis-a-vis verse 30? Or if we're to lend so open-handedly, verse 35, is it a sin then to charge interest when we lend? These and, and many, many more questions are, are very valid questions. And yet, for our purposes this morning... I feel the need for us to to focus on the big picture, the two big themes that Jesus addresses in this passage. Uh, Perhaps we'll have the opportunity to to delve in a little bit more deeply to the particulars at some other time, but I want us to to get the big idea, namely uh, two things, Jesus pronouncing woes, W-O-E-S, and Jesus prescribing mercy even in the most unlikely cases. Pronouncing woes, prescribing mercy. Let's start with the woes. Jesus gives them to us in verses 24 to 26 of chapter 6 in Luke's Gospel. Now, it may not have been necessary for us to highlight this in a former time or a former cultural context, but, but here we are, Washington, Pennsylvania, 2023. We are living in 21st century America and so I feel a, a pastoral responsibility, I guess you could call it, to, to start with this basic principle flowing out of these verses here about the woes that Jesus prescribes at the, uh, at the risk of sounding a bit like Captain Obvious. I just want to make sure we all get this. And it's the first biblical principle that we ought to take note of. Jesus speaks woes. That's actually something that Jesus does. He he pronounces woes on people. In fact, this is part of the divine message that Jesus himself came to proclaim. You say, wait a minute, Zeb, I thought Jesus came to bring a message of grace and salvation. Yes, yes he did. And also a message of destruction 
and disaster. Now, why do we even need to spend time making this point? I mean, I think it should be pretty obvious here in black and white. Jesus pronounces woes. Well, I think we need to belabor this point because there's been an attempt made at rebranding Jesus, if you will. An attempt made at recasting a counterfeit image of Jesus that is completely lopsided. And it's a picture, friends, that you are probably very familiar with. This picture of Jesus that's painted by many in our modern context is the picture of Jesus that shows compassion. It's a picture of Jesus extending mercy and love, friends, to which we say yes and amen. Jesus is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Jesus is a God of of love and mercy and compassion. The second person of the triune Godhead. However, this picture that's often painted around us of Jesus stops there. As if to ignore, or even worse, even perhaps erase any trace of Jesus' justice, of Jesus' righteous anger, Jesus' wrath against sin. So it ends up being kind of like this, if you'll permit me a uh, a personal illustration. This is a picture of my mantle above our fireplace at home. You can kind of see the brick there, right? You ever done this before? When you're taking a picture and your, your finger sort of sneaks in front of the lens? By accident, many of us are, are guilty. I think this is akin to the picture that some in our modern day context paint as it relates to Jesus. Let me ask you a question about this picture hanging over my home. Would this exact image be an appropriate picture for me to hang on my mantle place? No, of course not. Why not? Well, not just because it would be a like, glaring artistic error, right? And just super awkward. It wouldn't be an accurate picture because half of the Thomas family is completely obscured by my finger, right? It's not an accurate picture of the Thomases. And make no mistake about it, this is really my family. But it's not the full picture of my family, is it? And similarly, friends, there is a version of Christianity out there today that would seek to say, if it's positive, it's from God. And if it's negative, well, it's from Satan, if he even exists. But it's certainly not from God. Positive equals God. Negative equals something else. Friends, this is not biblical Christianity. Here is Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, exuding grace and mercy from His pores, perfectly good, perfectly patient. And what is the perfect God-man doing? Well, here, He is presenting both blessings. Let me remind you, that was last week. If you look at our text here, just go back a few verses. Verses 20-23. to 
Benjamin covered this. He did a great job last week. You can listen to that message online. Jesus pronouncing blessings over his followers. And yet he's also, don't miss it. Please don't miss it. He's also pronouncing curses. It's just like that righteous man Simeon prophesied with baby Jesus in his arms that glorious day in the temple. We read it not many weeks ago in in Luke chapter 2, verse 34, when Simeon prophesied over Jesus, weeks old, Jesus without neck control. He said, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. The what? The fall and rising for many in Israel. I just want to remind everyone in this room this morning that Jesus will be either the source of your salvation or your stumbling block. Jesus will be either... Ultimately, your resurrection or your ruin. Here is the perfect Son of Man in the flesh, and He's pronouncing both, listen, both blessings and woes. We would do well to remember, church, that if you're going to worship Jesus, and you should, every knee will one day bow before Him. If you're going to worship the King, Make sure it's the right Jesus. Not just a one-dimensional caricature of him. Now, a word about how to interpret Jesus' woes here in verses 24 to 26. And one thing that we should do, or not do rather, at the very start of making sense of this passage, as hard as it is, is that we should not rip these woes from Jesus out of their proper context. In other words, don't interpret Jesus' woes, W-O-E-S, in isolation. Because what Jesus is not saying is that there is anything inherently wrong with this list of things he's mentioned. Look here, look here verses 24, 25, 26. Jesus is not saying, we've got to get this straight. Jesus is not saying that being rich is inherently wrong. Many rich men and women blessed by God throughout the Old and New Testaments. Jesus is not saying that being full is wrong. Otherwise, you'd have to delete large swaths of the Psalms and the Proverbs. And It's not wrong. It's not a sin to push back from the dinner table, sated, especially thankful to the Lord for the meal that you've just had. That's not a sin. Jesus is not saying that laughing is implicitly wrong or that people speaking well of you is wrong. There are clear examples, friends, all throughout the Bible of these things even being portrayed as good. So what's going on here? Jesus is pronouncing woe upon people for being or doing these things. If we're going to understand Jesus' woes here in this passage, we've got to see them in their proper context, which means we need to back up a bit and read these woes in direct contrast to the list of blessings that Jesus literally just finished giving. I'll remind you again, when Jesus was talking, he was not chopping it up like Morse code. Verse 27, stop. 
Verse 28, there, there is not the numbers that we see in our Bible, the chapter and verse breaks. This is Jesus continuing a fluid conversation. He finishes pronouncing the blessings, and in the very next breath, continues to the woes. And if we're going to understand them, we've got to take them together as a unit. What is glaringly obvious, friends, when you back up a little bit and see the woes pronounced from Jesus in their proper context, is that these four woes are mirror opposites of the four blessings just given. Check it out. Got them up on the screen here. Now, Benjamin was, was helping me out. He's like the tech-savvy guy around here. And what I wanted to do was have the passage and have, have these words circled and highlighted and... Technology was just not my friend this weekend. So, forgive me. This uh, perhaps will we'll, uh, portray the same point. Jesus says, note the direct one-to-one correspondence. Blessed are you who are poor. And then, contrasting that directly, a few verses later, woe to you who are rich. He continues down the list. Blessed are the hungry. Woe to the full. Blessed are those who weep. Woe to those who laugh now. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. Doesn't sound like a good day to me. Jesus pronounces blessing over that situation. Woe to you, consequently, are you when people speak well of you, verse 26. You see how these things fit together like a glove on purpose? So the point, friends, is not... That in order to be a real, true disciple of Jesus, you got to get yourself poor. In order to be blessed by God, you better get yourself hungry. You better get yourself hated. That's, that's not the point. The point instead is that many of Jesus' disciples are, in fact, poor. Many who are loved by Christ and who belong to Him, are indeed hungry and hated. So how do we process this? These are the people, remember, looking back to verse 20, Jesus lifted His eyes on His disciples, on those who follow Him, who belong to Him, and He's pronouncing over them in the midst of life's difficulty, in the midst of tension and very real duress. You're blessed. You're blessed. It's as if Jesus says to those who are persecuted and oppressed, but who belong to Him, the banner over your life is blessing. Why? Well, not because you're some spiritual masochist. You got a screw loose and you're just a, you just like punishment. No. You're blessed because you belong to Me and it ends well for you. Because of how you line up with me. The converse is clearly true here. We see the flip side in the woes that we're covering today. If you have no connection to Jesus, if you're not his disciple, even if you've got it great, even if you're sitting, what, what do they say, high on the, is it the horse or the hog? I can always count on you, Charlie. You can have everything the world seeks to offer. Everything the world would regard as successful and, and good. You can, you can be rich. You can be full. You can be well regarded and esteemed by everyone around you. 
And yet the ultimate statement over your life, if you are not Jesus' disciple, if you aren't in Christ, is but tragedy and woe. Woe to those who are rich in this life without me, Jesus says, because you already have your reward. Translation, this is as good as it gets for you. Yikes. Made in the image of God, every man, woman, child, knit with an eternal life, we will, all of us, live forever. And Jesus' pronouncement over his own is blessing. His pronouncement over those who are not is woe. I don't know a better way to drive this home than just to, just to give you an example that Jesus himself gave. And so I'm not going to try to explain this. I just want to cap this statement about woe uh, over the lives of those who have it all in this life uh, with a parable that Jesus gives later here in the book of Luke. Again, we'll teach this when we get to Luke chapter 16, but now I just want to read you Jesus' words to see if this if this drives home, this is Luke 16, 19 to 31, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man, Jesus says, who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham! Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And he did. And he did. Paul writes these light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see the scale? 
I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe our boy Lazarus' problems as light and momentary, nor would I describe those getting blessings pronounced over them by Jesus here in Luke 6 as experiencing light and momentary affliction. But Jesus, with eternity in view, looks at His followers and says, if you've got Me, you're blessed. And without Me, though everything the world has to offer is at your disposal, My pronouncement over you is woe. Okay. Jesus helps us. This is a perspective-setting passage, to say the least. And he continues from pronouncing blessing and woes and, and pivots, if you will, here in verse 27. Would you look with me here in Luke 6, 27? The, the final point we'll consider here is Jesus' command to love your enemies. And I want to appeal to you here, Friendship Community Church, please don't go on autopilot right now. We've heard this before, many of us, growing up in southwestern Pennsylvania, even if you haven't been to church in a while or if you don't belong to a church, most of us have heard this language, love your enemies. And I want you to consider for just a moment what that might actually entail. Look how Jesus begins this command. Verse 27, look, look what he says. Jesus gives this command to whom? You're looking at me. The answer's in your book. He gives this command to whom? To those who hear. Question. Do you have ears to hear this morning what the good shepherd would say to you? Consider for just a moment the sheer difficulty of this command that Jesus issues to his followers. I mean, I don't, I don't know how you do this. Some of us, myself included, I'll be real with you this morning, struggle to love even our friends well. Some of us struggle to love our wives or our husbands, our children in the way that God calls us to. Don't sit there smugly. Have you read Ephesians chapter 5? <laughs> I have an amazing wife, and I am often dismayed at my inability to love her the way that God has called me to. I'm often throwing up my hands in despair because my struggle for me just to manage my own inner dysfunction, let alone, let alone reaching out to my friends and neighbors and sacrificially showing them the love of Christ. I know I'm not alone here. By the way, we're okay. Lindsay and I are okay. Do you feel this? Sometimes on our best day, we struggle to love those who we really do love well. But Jesus' command, and this is next level stuff, right? He calls us to love our enemies. By the way, just as a quick aside, did you see verse 31? We've got a nickname for this. We call it the golden rule. Now this is fascinating. The golden rule, verse 31, as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. This golden rule from Jesus is nestled where? In the middle of his instruction to love our enemies. 
I mean, the, the gold in this rule is not directed to your family and your friends and to those near and dear to your heart here in this passage. The golden rule is aimed right at whom? Your enemy. See, the point is that this kind of love is not reciprocal. You may not get anything back from this. I like how one particular commentary, a very helpful resource that I've mentioned often in the past, the Reformed Expository Commentary says it. I think this is very helpful about loving our enemies. I'm just going to read it to you. Maybe this will strike a vein. Philip Ryken pens these words. We all have our enemies. Some of them are public. The greedy company that takes advantage of its employees. The unscrupulous politician who introduces ungodly legislation. The reckless driver who injures an innocent bystander. The dictator who persecutes the church. The terrorist who brings war and destruction. But others are more personal. Like a demeaning boss. The scheming co-worker. The angry neighbor, the hostile spouse, the former friend who has grown distant because of a disagreement. Who is your enemy? This is an important question to answer because whoever your enemy is, he or she is the person Christ is calling you to love. So, Perhaps you're here and you're, you're, you're caught up in the words, right? You're, you're looking uh, to put some color on this, this term. What, what, what exactly is an enemy? And, and how far is Jesus asking me to go here with his instruction? Well, friend, don't miss the point, right? Don't get lost in the forest through, through the trees. If Jesus calls you to do this for your enemy then would someone less than your enemy not also be deserving of this treatment? Yeah. Yeah. Now, I think some of the richness of this biblical truth can get lost on us as English speakers because we here in English have uh, one catch-all word for love. So I can love a hamburger, and boy, do I ever love me a hamburger. And I can also love Lindsay. Yee. <laughs> Are those two things on the same level? Well, they should not be, or I really am in trouble when I leave here this afternoon. Love. One word in English for a very nuanced construct. You know, in the biblical language, the language of the New Testament called Koine Greek, Common Greek, there are four different words to express, uh, express excuse me, different aspects of this thing called love. Some of you may be familiar with the one Jesus uses here. Jesus, uh, Jesus calls us to love our enemies with a type of love. He uses the term agape. Now, two quotes, two more quotes. I'll just give you two more uh, from, again, helpful, faithful men who I think help us piece this together. One biblical commentator, Leon Morris, observes this about the different ways that the word love can be used. I I think this will be helpful for you to hear. Morris writes, there are several words for love in Greek. Jesus was not asking for storge, or natural affection, nor eros, romantic love, nor philia, the love of friendship. He was speaking of agape, which means Love even of the unworthy, love which is not drawn out by merit. 
Again, Philip Ryken continues in this vein, really helping us to see what type of love Jesus is calling us to. Ryken writes, agape is different from all other loves. Unlike storge, it's unnatural. It comes by the supernatural work of God, the Holy Spirit. Unlike eros, agape is not romantic. That's not calling you to smooch your enemy. It's not the kind of love that one ever falls into. Rather, it's the kind of love that disciples choose as a part of their obedience to Christ. Unlike philia, agape is not for friends only. It's also for enemies. And Jesus called his disciples to show a deliberate affection for that which was not based upon what people deserved, but by the grace of God. So I hope... I hope this is starting to make a little bit more sense now. Jesus calls us to do something way beyond our spiritual pay grade. And the only chance, let's just level, the only chance that you or I have of actually pulling this off, of doing something that's so radically contradictory to our nature and our flesh, is that we should be filled with the supernatural love and grace of God himself. That's good news, I hope, for you and for me. Because I want to remind you, friends, that God is very good at agape. God is very good at loving his enemies. After all, were you listening? When Rich led us in our scripture reading just a moment ago, how as Jesus was going to the cross to accomplish our salvation. When He took upon Himself the weight of our sin and shame and pain and traded our consequence, our death for His life and imputed to us His very own righteousness. As Jesus was accomplishing that blessed, saving work, what were they doing? They were reviling him, scorning him, mocking him. And in the midst of their scorn, in the midst of Jesus being surrounded by enemies as he's dying for them, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. That's agape. That's that's a supernatural er love that's not earned. That's a love you don't fall into. That's a love you choose. A love born by God. God the Holy Spirit. You can't work this up yourself. Try as you may. And let's not forget that this wasn't just something for those terrible people on that terrible day, on that terrible hill 2,000 years ago. We ought to remember that the enemies that Jesus chose to love included us. You remember those verses we read a moment ago from Romans 5, these beautiful verses, these hard-to-swallow verses which move from, from trouble to joy. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. How's God show His love for you and me? Here it is. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Still guilty. Romans 
5.10, just a few verses later, twist the knife. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for while we were still enemies, enemies of God, we were reconciled to Him by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Friends, God is very good at loving His enemies. It's why you're here. The point then is not that you or that I would try to muster up enough kindness or goodness to love our enemy out of the reservoir of love and altruism that we possess. No, it's that you would realize that I, even me, I was the enemy. And Christ loved me even unto death. So, so now, now that I have eternal life in Jesus' name, now that my life and my eternity is defined by His grace and His love, now that I'm empowered by His Spirit to live a kind of love that I could never live or love on my own, now with His example, the example of the cross ever before me, now I can love my enemy with His power and Spirit doing it within me. The point, of course, is that we as adopted sons and daughters of Jesus Christ are called to bear out here and now in this life the family resemblance that we now possess. We've been adopted sons and daughters of the King, sealed for eternity. And Jesus is merely calling us here in Luke chapter 6 to act in accordance with our new nature. One last little example. I'm just trying to make it click here. The Thomases in, the, in our backyard, we got a little postage stamp backyard uh, in, in Washington, and an and even smaller pond. It's like a little fish pond in the back of our house. It needs some work. If you know anything about ponds, we could use your help. But we love our pond. And we've got all kinds of little critters swimming in there. We've got goldfish, and we've got minnows, and we've got all whatever my son is putting in there without my knowledge, I'm sure. To that end, a few weeks ago, our oldest son, Asher, brought a snapping turtle home from Mingo. And man, was he making his case. Dad! My answer... Hard no. No chance is that dinosaur of a snapping turtle going in our, in our little fish pond in our tiny little backyard. Why? Because I'm a terrible ogre of a dad? <laughs> Was that Asher? <laughs> Touche. Why, why would I not let him have a snapping turtle in our backyard pond? Well, because he's a snapping turtle. And his nature is to snap. Not just our goldfish, which we're working so hard to sustain, but also our children who dangle their piggies over the pond 
What's my point? My point is, snapping turtles snap. They can't help it. It's their nature. And we, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, have been given a new nature. We've been made new. The old is gone and the new is come. We've been empowered by the very Spirit of God to act in a different way. To bear the family resemblance. And God has given us a different economy by which to live and operate. And it's impossible, right? How do you do this? Well, you don't have a chance on your own. But God who is very good at this sort of thing, loving His enemies, calls us to act likewise. What was that that last verse in the passage where Jesus just bottom lines it? Here's the punchline. The Most High is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Why do you show mercy to those who hate you? Because that's what your Father's like. And now it's our call. With His power, with His Spirit, He enables us to do what only He can. Alright, let's wrap it all up with a bow of application here. How in the world would we begin to put this into practice here? Well, I love it when Jesus just literally spells it out. Now, we could, we could spend a lot of time on specifics. I'm not going to do that here. We're going to let you out in just a moment. I would just address, or direct your attention rather to verse 27. When Jesus initially tells us we ought to love our enemies, He very kindly tells us some ways that we could go about doing that. Look, at He bakes application right in here to the command. He says, love your enemies. And then He gives us three ways to go about doing that. How ought we to love our enemies? Well, first one, very simple, do good to them. In other words, be kind. Now, this is harder than it sounds. It sounds pretty easy to say, right? What Jesus is not saying to his, child, to his brothers and sisters in the kingdom is, hey, maybe you could find it within yourself to leave your enemies alone. Don't return tit for tat. It's not an eye for an eye anymore. I mean, just just maybe it'd be better if you went separate ways. Jesus' command here goes further, does it not? Not just leave your enemy alone. His call to His people is do good to your enemies. Actually, positively show them kindness. His next instruction is bless them. Bless. Why? Well, because the easiest thing in the world for you to do to an enemy is what? Curse them. Especially when, well, behind their back, when they're not there. Jesus Application for this command is quite simple. Rather than cursing your enemy, what might it look like if you bless them? What might it look like if instead of cursing them behind their backs, you spoke kindly to them or about them, affirmingly? 
And then the last of the triad here, I think, is the, is the crux of the matter. Jesus says that we're to pray, to pray for our enemies. You know, something very strange happens when you begin to pray for somebody on a regular basis, when you begin to sincerely seek the Lord on, the, on behalf of someone, even someone who's against you, you know what happens after you do that for any period of time, any sustained period of time? Well, you can't continue to ask God for good things for them in prayer and have your heart remained hard. Over time, as you pray for your enemies, what begins to happen is your heart softens to them. This is not the instruction manual, but isn't it a good start? Jesus says, love your enemies. Here's part of what that looks like. Do good to them. Not just leave them alone. Positively do good. Bless them, even and especially when they're not around. And pray, pray for them. This agape kind of love is love from the Father poured out through His Son by the power of His Spirit, and it's for us, Friendship Community Church. May we be a people marked by the radical upside-down love that Jesus has called us to demonstrate. And I can't think of a better way than to end our service by singing about this love, the love that God gave to us that He in turn says, give to one another. It's a song that we like to sing around here, or at least I like to sing it around here. It's called, His Mercy is More. That's why, we, that's why we can sing together. Would you stand as we pray and sing one final time? Father, we thank you for your grace in our life. We thank you, Lord, that we were your enemies in Christ. You have made us friends, children, heirs. Lord, your mercy to your enemies was greater. Now give us the grace, Father. Give us the grace to love like you do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.